1: Hello and welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. Today's guest joining Robin on the podcast is the comedian Daniel Sloss to talk about his Everyone You Hate Is Going To Die and other comforting thoughts on family, friends, sex, love and more things that ruin your life. That has just come out in paperback, so look out for that. Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters, a special that's gone up for Patreon supporters, This week, uh, yesterday, in fact, is a new half-hour video with Robin going through all of the books he bought on the first leg of the Horizons Tour and uh, picking out a top 10. We filmed that last week. He has set off now on leg two back to the US and Canada with Professor Brian Cox. So expect a lot more tour diary entries and book posts and episodes of Taking the Universe Around the World, our new podcast, keep an eye out for that, Uh, our new web series, Making Tracks, uh, first episode of that come out this week as well uh, with Simon Patterson uh, in Gibraltar, uh, learning about the macaque monkeys over there, so go onto our YouTube channel for that, enough of all of that, on to today's episode of the show, here is Robin and Daniel Sloss.
0: Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Josie's not here again, by the way. Uh, But she will be back soon, in fact, when I'm away. It's like we don't get on anymore, but I think we're into uh, probably about that kind of 45 minute sequence in a rock Hudson and Doris Day movie where we've added that extra level of jeopardy um but uh yeah as I said she's gonna be back very very soon um I should say that today um I'm I'm currently I'm, I'm just around at my sister's and where sometimes I record the show and just so the listeners know Trent our producer hasn't added a rural soundtrack for this conversation with Daniel Sloss. That I am in a room with a cardboard box uh, containing uh, six uh, chicks that are becoming chickens that are just growing up. So when you hear in the background, why have they added the sound of chicks trying to leave a cardboard box? It's fully open, by the way, and it's fully heated and everything, so I don't think there's any level of animal, no animal cruelty is ever used when we make book shambles, but that's the noise uh, you will hear in the background. Um, today, you are talking to someone who uh, you may well have seen his specials, which uh, uh, it covers so many topics, so many ideas. It's one of those really annoying things that when you look back at your comedy career and you realise how useless you, you still were in. In your early 30s, might still be useless at the age of 53 as well. Uh, and this person has been creating comedy and on very very in very interesting areas Uh, and it's amazing actually sometimes to see the incredible trust that an audience give him because he's very very funny as well Uh, Daniel Sloss who has now just written a book as well uh, uh, Everybody You Hate Is Going To Die um, which starts off with a very positive message which is to say that if if you're imagining a divorce go and see one of his shows and it will throw you towards uh, the actual legal system of your you'll undoubtedly if you go and see his show you might have thought you were in a happy relationship but he will destroy that for you which i think you know is is is, it's it's a it's a a, a very empowering book right from the outset (laughs) i think so (laughs) well it is it's a fact i mean this is a thing that the first thing i wanted to I, i want to ask about the writing of it because when i was reading it it is a volcanic eruption to me it was the there is incredible momentum which is a very hard thing to do, I think, to which is I think your stand-up voice is beautifully conveyed at the same time as it being a book, if you see what I mean. it's not. I don't feel like I'm reading a script. Well, thank you very much, because
2: that's what I was going for, because I'm not an author, so I was like, I can't write this book as somebody who has a very, uh, you know, I I, I I I always enjoyed English at school, but that doesn't mean I passed it. It doesn't mean I was like the best in the class. I would like, you know, writing out my thoughts and uh, about books that we'd read or things that we were studying and then to actually, you know, do that. I, I, I know I don't have the linguistic skills to compare to the people I love reading. All I have is my very obnoxious, loud, semi-drunk voice, overly confidently stating opinions that I shouldn't really be trying to to justify. One of the big worries with me with the book is was... I was so nervous that the, when I'm on stage, there's the twinkle in my eye, right? And, and it's so much of the performance is, you know, when you're saying something that is indefensible and the joke is that you're trying to defend the indefensible, it's so much of the performance comes with how you say the joke and when you leave the breaths and, and when you interrupt the audience and it's, you know, you're in control. Whereas in book form, it's not there. Like if you if you know my stuff, then you can read it in my voice and that's great but if you pick it up in the airport so many times during the editing process i'm like i think i just come across as a knob here like if i'm if you're just like a neutral and you see a shiny yellow book that goes everyone you hate gonna die you're like oh that sounds interesting and then you know the swear counts well over a thousand and it's you know horrible stuff i'm not sure how it comes across to the the, the neutral but i mean i guess i wasn't i wasn't expecting the neutral to ever buy the book so i was just going let's I'll be selling these after shows these are for, for my people who understand me already.
0: Well, I, I, I think, I mean, at times it, I, I could see it as being a kind of twenty first century Catcher in the Rye. Uh, <laughs> there's and, and the, the there are these bits where you do just uh, that's what I, I I really liked actually is you open the book and almost immediately it kind of says you idiot, uh, yeah. which is one of the things that you play with quite a lot in 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 stand up as well. So how did you get to get that voice right? What was your, I mean, how many drafts did this book go through? Did, did I get it right? <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I I thought um, that, like I said, the momentum, it just carries you through a little bit like Catcher in the Rye in that way that you just go, you know, whether you like the narrator or not, you just go, where's this going now? Where's this going now? Where's it? Where are they taking me now? And because you're an unexpected, because you don't cajole, I mean, I don't think there's any cajoling in this book, I would say. Yeah. You never kind of go, hey, come over here. Come with me. You go, come here now.
2: Yeah, listen. Right. listen. And Actually, leave
0: if you don't like it. I don't yeah, care.
2: Yeah, either listen or piss
0: off. That's Yeah. The
2: right. yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, it, it certainly took a bunch of rewrites because, I mean, I never, you know, I never thought I would write a book. I was approached by <laughs> uh, Penguin Random House um, and they were like, would you like to write a book? Clearly you've got some very strong opinions on things and some of them are controversial and that will obviously help sales can you like write about your opinions on relationships and I was like okay I'll just I'll literally just give you 100% like a stream of consciousness like I'll just I've always been a ranter like it's what my mum's always said it she's like I don't know where you learned it from because neither of my parents rant but I've always been somebody that you know p- when I get passionate about something I'll just talk and talk and talk and I've realized from a young age that the only way I could get people to listen to my rants was if they were also funny Right, it's the only way people will be interested if there's something in it for them. So I sort of had the stream of consciousness on, on, on each type of relationship, and then I would send it through to the editor, and he was just like, "Yeah, great, cool, next one." And I'm like, "No, no, 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 no. I need infinitely more feedback than that. Like, I, I, you know, I, I, I want to know what I've got what I've gotten wrong. Which of my opinions are just stupid here? Where, where am I being antagonistic? Where it doesn't scan or whatever? And I had all these, you know, anxieties because. You know, I, none of us want to, well, no, that's not true. I was going to say, none of us want to actually offend people. But that, <laughs> I, but I, I can't say that with all honesty. There are, there are groups of people who I take great joy in offending. I think there are people out there who deserve to be annoyed. And if I can be the one to do it, then so be it. It's my superpower. Um, but when you're just having a stream of consciousness, unlike with stand-up, you know, you where people can't really go back on what you said in a live performance, you can roll over the things that you get mistake, people can go back and be like, hold on, what does this sentence actually mean here, let's break this down, let's, you know, take it, not necessarily take out of context, but like, really look into it and, you know, when you use language the way so many of us do, it's very possible that in your rants uh, attacking someone else that you can accidentally bring other groups into the crossfire. So, you know, if I was attacking, let's say, religious people who I'm not, and not any particular religion, just any religious person in general, if I'm attacking that, uh, I want to make sure that, I don't want to attack all religious people, I want to attack the religious people that I dislike, and that's the ones that use their religion to justify evil, they use their religion to uh, force their uh, opinions on other, enforce their lifestyles on other people and dampen other people's lifestyles. But what I don't want to do is I don't want to offend the people who where religion for them is just, it's a comfort blanket. It's the thing that gets them through their every day. It's the, you know, because I mean, I say in the book, sometimes I'm jealous of people who are religious. I'd love to have that feeling of there being a big God coming down and picking me up and telling me that everything's okay. So going through the process, you know, I would write this long rant out and I would just be as vitriolic as I am and then going back through it almost like sober from the from the rage of the initial writing process. I'd be like, oh, that needs to be edited there. And I would try and put myself in the position of friends of mine who fall into the groups that I was attacking and making sure that uh, even if it's harsh, it's very obvious that even if you can't see it, that my tongue is firmly in my cheek or it's done with the thing of, hey, I am also an idiot. Understand that I don't respect half of the opinions I come out with because opinions I had 10 years ago are different to the ones I have now. Most of these opinions are what I feel in the moment. They're passionate and they're sort of over-grossly performed to, not to parody, because I, I don't think I'm too much of a character, but it's certainly a, well, I mean, you know, you're a performer. We're, we're always heightened versions of ourselves on stage. Whereas in the book, I felt the only way to get people back on site after that eh, when you attack them is to, sh- to be completely and utterly vulnerable with them is to you know if you attack something so viciously with with you know venom or hatred or vitriol to then the best way to explain it or justify it is to sort of roll over and show your belly and go and this is why I feel this way you know The um, my first show that I ever did was was called uh, Dark wasn't the first show that was ever special I did was called Dark and it was explaining my dark sense of humor and it was about the passing of my younger sister and it was a, that thing for me is like look I'm going to say these horrible things and the reason I say these horrible things is because this is my coping mechanism and it has always been my coping mechanism it doesn't make it right and I'm not asking you to think I'm correct but what I want to do is I want you to come on my journey of thought so you can understand how I arrived at my conclusions because that's often something I struggle to do with other people is you know when I see somebody with opinion I disagree with I just get angry as opposed to taking that important step back and going, right, instead of looking at the, the opinion that I think is wrong, let's look at the steps to how they got there. What lifestyle did they live before me? What life do they have? Where did they live? How did they live? Who did they love? What makes them how they are? And if I put myself in those positions, am I more empathetic to the the opinion I hate so much? And often the answer is yes.
0: Well, that's good. that's the thing that I find very interesting watching you or watching those specials, in fact, that you just mentioned, which is you have... On stage, you have a very high status. I mm-hmm. think you know you got, but at the same time, underneath it, without you revealing it through the tone of your voice, you know, as you said, when you talk about your your sister Josie and 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 the way that uh, the audience also have... I mean, to me, it's an incredible piece of of both craft by you and also confidence from the audience, which is they can go we can understand if someone is prepared to stand on stage and talk about the, the the death of their sister and talk about still being able to hear her laugh and all of those things, while still behaving in this kind of quite bombastic, that it shows me how, how complex an audience are as well. And yeah. so often they're pandered to, I think, or someone presumes that an audience, you know, are... A lot more stupid than they actually are and when I was watching it in particular that I think it's in the second one isn't it jigsaw where, where you, you you talk about Joseph's grave and things like that and <clears throat> I was I was I was impressed on both sides of the stage at that point
2: oh thank you ma well I, I think the, the thing with audiences is, is I mean I, I, and I say this to new comedians all the time is the audience uh, exists in two states they're, they're like Schrodinger's cat they are both at the same time the smartest people in the room and also the dumbest people alive because they are s- smart in the sense that, the, man, audiences sniff out bullshit faster than anyone else. They, they're You're a live performer. They'll know if you're being disingenuous. They'll know if you're scared. They'll know if you're nervous. They'll know if you're not confident. They'll pick that up from your vibe. So you owe it to them to be as honest as possible, because otherwise they'll see straight through you. But on the other side of things, It's also, uh, they're also easy to convince. Like it's, you've got to understand the power of confidence because to an audience, especially, the most alien thing to them is they not even talking about this stuff on stage. They can't imagine standing on stage in front of a room full of people and saying anything. I think that's the reason why, you know, we always hear people going, oh, I could never do what you do. It's an old joke among comedians that you'll hear this from people in the army, from firemen, from police officers going, I could never do what you do. And I'm like, that's the con. That's, that's, that's the con. Everyone could do what we do, but the reason they don't is because we're, we're scared. So the, I mean, the bravado I had on stage and um, still sort of uh, do, I mean, at this point, it just comes from experience. Originally it was the arrogance of youth. I was too stupid to realize that what I was doing was scary on stage. Um, but I also think with audiences, I've spent so much, because my career has gone through so many phases and my comedy's changed over the years as well. I've had to shed audience members a lot. Like when I grow up, you know, I, when I was younger, I was doing the Paula Grady show and I was doing jokes about living with my parents and I was a virgin and, oh God, school was awkward. And then I get onto my, you know, early 20s and I don't want to talk about that anymore. I want to talk about, you know, religion. I want to talk about drugs. I want to talk about sex. I want to talk, you know, I want to yell about things and be angry. And there was times on stage where, I mean, I remember one festival, I think it was my fourth Edinburgh Fringe, uh, minimum every day, 25 people walking out of the show, just because they'd seen family-friendly, swear-free Daniel Sloss on stage, and then they're coming to the show, and I'm like, "God, not God's not real, drugs are cool, I'm the best, Ugh, me. And rightfully, 25 people were like, oh, this is not what I was promised on television. And they left, and it was so hard in those moments to... Because, I mean, I had the power to win those audience members back. You know, I'm a comedian. I can, can, you know, I can make a room full of people. I can tone down my swearing I can tone down my attitude and have those 25 people enjoy what I'm saying and keep that entire audience happy. But in the long run, that wouldn't make me happy as a performer. I want to perform to my audience. That's why I get so annoyed by comedians now complaining about fucking offending people. You're like, what's what do you... Offending people as a comedian is just shaking a tree to get the, the fruit off of it right you don't want to appease everyone that, that that's not comedy that's not even fucking art you know that's that's nature essentially it's you you, you want we want to make sure that you're getting to your people and people have a right to be offended by comedy they have a right to be offended by everything and comedians and performers have a right not to care and I mean, I've, I've, I've rambled on so much of that, I've forgotten the point of the original question, but I think the point I'm trying to make is, uh, no, I've lost it, I've got, it's gone.
0: Well, it was a very good point. It was, uh, you were just saying that you um, haven't been invited back on the Paul O'Grady show for a, a <laughs> yes. while. I think that was it. That was the, uh, what, what, why don't I get daytime anymore? Yeah, you were complaining yeah, about yeah. that. The um, oh. <laughs> But, but that's that's very interesting, That because I think, you know, we were talking before we started recording about offence, and, most of the offence – the comics who are known for – because I don't know you as an offensive comic, if you see what I mean. I, I don't, I, I would, I don't I, myself – I wouldn't Christian. put you in that category of which is that horrible, you know, edgy. Because generally there's a lot of comics out there who seem to – what they're aiming to do is offend, which to mm-hmm. me is a very I, – I don't like that at all. I think the idea of saying I want to offend people – is utterly pointless because yeah. as you said offense is very very easy all of us could come up with a joke that will make people go oh god you know and then some people think it's cool because we've just made people feel sad yes which i've never really understood that idea as well because i think the the first thing that i think of when i'm doing a show is i hope most people leave happier to be alive when <laughs> the, the, when they came in yeah it's am yeah. very old-fashioned in that way and it was um and that's what I think is interesting, you know, when I see the way that you use ideas that are, sometimes, you know, you're dealing with extreme topics. Mm-hmm. And also some of the stuff that you've done in the past about misogyny as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I know that there will be people in the audience that will be made really uncomfortable by that. But it's, it's, it's discomfort for a purpose. And that's the thing that you might now, I don't know how, but I, I see you as a very moral comedian. <laughs> that you have, and I know, I know that's always uncomfortable, isn't it? It's like the one of the things that makes comedians uncomfortable is every now and again we do something which is actually useful for people and has really helped them, and then there's oh, just a the person doing jokes, and you get all kind of. Uh, and, but that's what when I when I, I look at your stuff and when I was reading the book, I thought you you have the point of view that you are trying to has real purpose. Mm-hmm. If you do offend people, it's on the journey to try and address. Things about what you see are wrong with our society, with our attitudes, with our own personal battles, and and would that be fair? Do you think? I, I think so.
2: I mean, it's it's not something I would have said about myself several years ago, uh, but with the with the shows that I've done, with you know, dark being about death, with uh, Jigsaw being about toxic and abusive relationships, ultimately by the end of it, and with the show I did X, which is about uh, sexual assault these shows where I talked about these incredibly hard topics that oh you can't say anything anymore Oh, I mean you can if you're good you can talk about anything and make jokes about anything it just requires talent and empathy and the seeing the impact of because I mean originally I was just these are just jokes and that was the wall we all hide behind it's just jokes it's just jokes as you said and then you find people who have lost siblings have lost relatives have people with disabilities in their life, they've been in abusive relationships, they've been sexually assaulted, they know somebody that's been sexually assaulted, all these things that come up. And after doing these shows and talking to these people and seeing the positive impact that it had on their life to just have the conversation out there, to have these taboo things, not necessarily normalized but spoken about in a way that's not demeaning them or undervaluing them but still put bring them into the public and making people laugh at them but making them laugh at the right side it's like I, I get so I mean I'm, I'm no rehashing territory I've said here but I get so bored of people saying that you cannot say anything anymore you can't you you just have to make sure you're approaching it from the right place who is the joke for who is it against? Very importantly, those two things. Who is it for and who is it against? And what's the purpose of the joke? Is it, it It should always be to make them laugh. But who are you trying to make laugh? Are you trying to make the good guys laugh? Or are you trying to make the bad guys laugh? And are you adding anything to the conversation? Or are you just rehashing the same hack shit that people have been doing for the past 20 years? Because, man, we could all sit down and write a 20-minute set of hack stuff that would rip in any club at any weekend. But I think you, when up, growing up and loving comedy so much, the, the comedy that always stayed with me the most was the stuff that made me think like, you know, I, I love Lee Evans. When I was growing up, Lee Evans would make me sob with laughter, but I go see his shows. And then afterwards people go, what did he say? And I'm like, Oh, I, um, he had this bit like about like a, a washing machine. And like, it was good. Cause he was like, and you know, and you just, and you can't really catch on the magic because that's the magic of Lee Evans. Whereas the shows I really loved uh, were the ones where comedians would go on stage and, challenge the audience not aggressively but in a way where they would talk about su- subjects that people normally didn't talk about or have the courage to talk about and 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 make you think and change your mind like i jim jeffries uh one of the earliest routines i remember him doing when i was growing up was the one about him taking a friend of his who had uh, oh, I can't, i can't it wasn't cerebral palsy but it was um some sort of degenerative and it was the first time I'd ever seen somebody speak about disability on stage in that way, and it was done in the way that you know, when he was making fun of him. Of course, you make fun of if you're friends, your friends. You make fun of your friend about anything. Like that's what f- friendship is. And it was done in this really empathetic way, where it was still very real, and and it made me th- think about so many things. I mean, and another good example of her stuff is the gun control routine. I mean, I, which I, you know. You can think of what you like about Jim Jeffries, but that 20 minute gun control routine is one of the greatest stand up sections I think ever written in it because it really there's no way you could have left that show not thinking about that joke for days and days after because he would funnily dismantle arguments. And I remember going, oh, that's a really powerful thing. That, that's a really powerful thing. And it's not a responsibility that you have. I will defend any comedian's right to make any joke about any subject. But behind closed curtains, I will be like, what the fuck was that about? Like, why are you making jokes about them? Like, what's, what was the, was it just to make yourself feel good? Was it to like make it, you know, just, do to, to, you like the feeling of bullying occasionally? Or are you doing jokes to try and challenge people? And you don't necessarily have to, you don't have a responsibility to do that but as I've gone on with the more shows I've done and seeing the impact the positive impact it can have on people and the conversations it can start with people like if you can make people start having a serious conversation from a joke you told it's a really powerful thing and 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 maybe I'm getting high on a power trip and you know but I, I really think it is it's such an interesting art form that we do. Like, it's, you know, we're clowns. We're just, we're you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're, the, we're not necessarily just clowns. I, I think it's more of, like, court jesters, because the point of the court jester was he was the only person that was allowed to come in and laugh at the king. And that was the only time everyone knew. And I think that is what it should be now, which is, hey, I'm I'm a big, dumb idiot. I'm a big, dumb idiot. But this is fucked up right? And it might not be fucked up for the reasons you think so, but here's why I think it is. And we're laughing at me the whole time and and even if you disagree with it, 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 you know, I always like comedians who can say stuff that you disagree with and then twist the argument around so in this one little frame it makes sense. I think that's such a fun skill because that doesn't convince the person in the audience that that argument is true, but it does make them think about their own opinions on it and causes them to have discussions after
0: well that's it I, I was thinking about um empathy you mentioned empathy and that to me seems to be a very you know that sometimes you'll hear uh, the comics that in particular in, in, enjoy offending people and then they'll say a joke's just a joke now first of all i think that as a comedian that really runs down what you do i mean i i i love comedy i 'm fascinated by it. it makes me furious it 's been my whole life since I first probably well before I even saw Rick Mayo when I saw the goodies when I was you know that and uh, and I think when that 's one of the things that gets me where I mean, like the, the the day that we're recording this has been a lot of conversations again about kind of anti-trans jokes. And there seem to be a lot of those out there. And, and I think that they're not most of the ones I've seen are not clever jokes. They're jokes that if I was uh, a young person who thought they were trans or even or whatever, would, you know, that I would really feel alienated and I would already more than I feel alienated already. Yes, I, it, it would it would add to... It's like I saw, that I think, this week or the end of last week, John Mulaney, as a special guest, had Dave Chappelle on. Yeah. And <clears throat> Dave Chappelle came on and did a, a bunch of anti-trans jokes. And, of course, there were there was trans people in the audience who went, oh, I wasn't expecting this. I didn't know this was going to happen. And yeah. um, that sense of alienation, one of the things that uh, kind of annoys me is when people react to that, they're then merely brushed off as taking that Stephen Fry line, so you're offended, so what? Yeah. And that's the bit which I think is a real reneging on your responsibility. If you're going to go on there to then also say, I will also refuse to talk about this and say you're just offended and I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's that bit of not not being prepared to then have a dialogue after yes. you've created that amount of offence to me is a problem.
2: Well, I, I, the, the dialogue is so, I 100% agree. The dialogue afterwards is so important. When I was writing X, which was the show about sexual assault, because I'm a man, I'm a white man going on stage talking about something that affects, you know, my my audience is just above 50% women, right? So when, when I'm going on stage and I'm talking about sexual assault, whether I like it or not, there's nothing I can do here. When you're talking about sexual assault on stage, you are talking about something that has affected minimum, minimum one third of that room. Take any random room in the world, right? Any random audience, walk in there. I guarantee you, when you talk about something like that, you're bringing up something that affects a third of that crowd. Now that's true for cancer. That's cute. That's true for death. My death, death affects 100% of people. And you've got to understand, when you bring up the worst moment in somebody's life, even in comedy, even if it's just in passing, how they react to it is their responsibility. In a way, but you don't get to just dismiss it. You don't get to dismiss. Oh, you reacted poorly to me reminding you of the worst thing that ever took place. But what you can do is you can open up. I mean, after the the first preview of X, man, it was really bad. <laughs> in like fact, it was. I I I was a white man in clogs, stumbling through a minefield, and I'm pretty sure I hit every single last one of them. But after the show, just at the end of it, I said, right, just blocks in the room just be quiet for just a second to the women here should i ever do this again should i ever or, or is this is this just like some stupid white knight stuff and i'm getting high on my own supply and i think you know i'll be the hero of it all two if it is worth talking about what did i get wrong and three, what else should I discuss? And afterwards, man, it was overwhelming. Like they came up, it was overwhelming. Yes, please do continue talking about it. Here's the bits that you definitely got wrong. You stupid idiot! Don't say that. That was dismissive. That was this. That was that. Here's how you should do it. And as the show went on, and it, and it got better, and 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 the feedback was good. These weren't complaints. These weren't people saying, "Oh no, you can't say that anymore." They're just going, "Hey." You're saying something, and it affected me in this way, but you can make it so that it's still as funny, but it's better for other people in the future. It's going to be an easier pill to swallow. And as the tour went on, at no point, I said to, I said to every single uh, venue that we went to, I'm like, if anyone walks out and they're walking out because they are triggered by what I'm saying, please give them the chance. Let them know. to I'll talk to them after the show, because I want to know what it was. And I want to know if I can what i can do so that doesn't happen again because as you said the point is never to offend those people the last thing i wanted to do in those moments was to offend the people affected by this but it's a really difficult topic that has to be spoken about and it has to be spoken about i i felt from a man's perspective because sometimes that's the only way men will listen Mm.
0: that is uh it's interesting, also when when you mentioned cancer, it made me think of. Did, did you ever um, see the work of Barry Crimmins? Do you know Barry Crimmins? At I
2: recognise the name.
0: He he. Bobcat Goldthwaite made a, a, a great film about him called "Call Me Lucky." <laughs> um, and uh, it's it's an incredible film. He he faced some really terrible, terrible things happened to him when he was a very little child. And then he his, his stand-up was very brilliantly angry at all the right topics. But I interviewed him once. We were talking about what he would say and what he wouldn't say on stage. And I said, do you have any kind of, you know, what don't you talk about? And he, and he just said, he said, I've never done a joke about cancer. He said, just because I've never thought of one funny enough that, it would then mean that I didn't mind the fact that I made someone remember someone they'd lost or their own current situation or whatever it might be. And I think, you know, that comes into that, that bit of going, you know, why do I? It, it's got to be such a good joke.
2: Yes, if I'm probably.
0: possibly going to, and and then he just said at the, at, at the end, and he he tackled some you know terrible you know he, he actually ended up he took AOL to it got, eventually got to a committee in Washington when he found out that basically AOL in the early days it was just really easy to share images of child abuse and stuff like that, and he really fought against all these things. He was you know all those things that people are so quickly called a snowflake, and Barry was you know the, the, I mean I think most people are called snowflakes aren't snowflakes anyway, whatever that might yeah. you know, <laughs> entail. But it's um, but yeah he was and you always he said you know you have to remember words are shrapnel and think about the direction that you're firing them in and that's the thing again which is I I I what I love about watching your work and and you know people like like James Acaster as as, as well and obviously my friend Josie Long and lots of other is I can see the level of thought that goes into what do I want to what am I intending to do Mm. with these words and what do I hope what is the best possible outcome of this and will people go home as you said that thing to open up a conversation I think is such a that that bit of talking to a member of the audience afterwards or when they want to tell you a story because you've opened up you know there's that that weird thing which I mean you, you were talking there a little bit earlier about that priestly thing that can happen and I think it does happen actually it's that odd bit a stranger they don't really know but they've come to trust through the way that they've used anecdote and they may well then share a story with you at the bar afterwards yeah. which they haven't actually told people who they really hang around with yeah. because you are the stranger that's passing through
2: having conversations with these people you go ah right okay they they were upset i'm not going to change the joke unless they make a very valid argument in which case and it's happened occasionally somebody will go just to let you know here's why i think that joke's actually quite weak and actually bad and i'll go oh fuck <laughs> oh yeah okay yeah i guess it is and people be like oh that's cancel culture that's silencing you go, know, motherfucker that's learning
0: that's learning that's what life is comedy <laughs> is perpetual cancel culture if you look at it that way because every single night we might go out there and you come up with a new idea or you've had a new idea that you've written on the train and you go this is the greatest idea ever and then you sit there to total silence and that joke <laughs> has been cancelled yeah, You know, yeah. after five times of trying that joke in different ways, that joke has been cancelled. Yeah, it's finally, yeah. And like it's, the fact it's finally it like, just wasn't funny.
2: Yeah, we cancelled the jokes. Like, we're the ones that go, oh, no, that's that that, that can't be done. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, let's not get too much onto the cancelling thing because I could talk about it for days. But just remember, every comedian that has ever been cancelled is currently on tour right now if you visit their website.
0: <laughs> Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book, Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. At what point did you... That transition from you being the guy on the Paul O'Grady show saying, oh, living with my mum and dad's really difficult, to then starting to because i think it's i remember talking to joe brand years ago and joe said you know i don't think you can really be a comedian until you're 30 because you still don't know who you are whereas of course now there's i think there's been younger and younger people starting into, and i think one of the things that perhaps helps as well is there's never been such easy access to every single comedian that's ever lived so yes. there's a fantastic open university training ground via youtube and loads of other places but that you are growing up on stage you are you know, sometimes I imagine within months you can look back at a show and go, oh, I don't think that anymore. Yep. And what, how was I that comedian? That, that's a lot to deal with.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's hard, man. Um, it's it's very difficult to, you know, there'll be times when I'm on stage, and you know, on an 18 month tour. And then month 17, I'm like, I don't believe in this joke anymore. Like, I absolutely 100% believed it when I wrote it, but I don't. Feel that way anymore, and the audience can tell. They sniff it out if you're if you're not honest. You just kind of have to cut it or you have to uh, rewrite it. The thing that I'm coming to terms with that I'm not so great at yet is, um, man. I've had I've got so many jokes in the past that if I were to look at it now, I'd be like, oh, I don't believe that whatsoever. But I think um, that's why I'm always honest on stage, and that's why I always add the caveat in of, hey. I'm a big idiot and I get things wrong like this is I'm not even though it sounds like I'm lecturing and I'm posturing as somebody that knows more than you. That's the joke. I'm an idiot that's lecturing the masses. I, I, and although, although there's a, the occasional kernel of good advice or or wisdom in it, it's still i make sure that it's still thoroughly wrapped up in silliness and dumbness and uh, and just jokes sometimes just to make sure that when people go hey that's definitely wrong I'm like probably and I'll grow and I and, and you know what and I'll call back to it I mean I'm doing shows I mean man I've, <laughs> I wrote the show Jigsaw which people have misinterpreted greatly ever since it came out because it's a show that broke up so many people uh, it was never about breaking couples up though I did take perverse enjoyment in it it was always meant to be a love letter to single people and, you know, a commentary on how we, f- you know, it, it, people who aren't in relationships are broken. And it was very much meant to be a a rail against that because I'd forced myself into be in relationships that I didn't want to be in just to appease the masses. And then when I got out of it, I was the happiest I've ever been. Uh, people to have taken that show to be an anti-love show, an anti-relationship show. People, you know, we don't get to choose how people consume our art. Man, I am engaged with a three-month-old son, and every time I go on stage now, there's people who the last thing they watched was Jigsaw. Not they didn't. They've not watched the other stuff because the other stuff isn't as easily accessible. So you know, last time they see me, and I'm like, and this, and you know, if you get out this relationship, and then I turn up, and I'm like, my fiance is actually a really good person, and I'll tell you, boy, do I love my son. And they're like, whoa, hey, but the the key there is to just go, yeah. yeah, yeah I changed and here's some jokes about why I changed and how I changed and sure you know what if you want to give me shit for it fair enough I very confidently stood on a box and I yelled a bunch of shit and now at the end of my rant you've all stayed for an extra five minutes and you're now watching me pack up my box put my stuff into it and get on the bus
0: that's very I, I love that idea it's like which it, it, it's the opposite of the transition that James Acaster does in the cold lasagna show you know when he just comes on and absolutely and everyone in the audience is going what's going on he's all swearing and everything Or is he's effing and jam-? You know, I, I, I love seeing that transition that idea that the first thing people are going to see after they've watched Jigsaw is you go very much in love at the moment yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. flowers have never smelt the way they smell now this is <laughs> not this is it we used to like him when he talked about them with his mum and dad then we had to go through this awkward transition of seeing him as this angry person talking about religion, and then we accepted that. It's yeah. like the band Eels. He always says Mark Everett, who wrote a great book called uh, I think Things to Tell Your Grandchildren, which is an incredible book about death, actually, because in one year, uh, I think he lost his, his sister to suicide. His uh, best friend was Elliot Smith, who killed himself. His mother died, and uh, his uh, – what was the other? Oh, and, and he had uh, two cousins he was very close to who were on the plane that hit the Pentagon. And he writes this incredible book about death, which is uh, and and love as well. But he always said the trouble with the band Eels is it's because he keeps changing the style. People go, well, we just got used to the last album, and now you've got a new one out, and it's all different again. So we've <laughs> got to keep going, and then that's when you find out how loyal they are, don't they? Are are you interesting enough for them to go? Okay, you've got totally different opinions now. Well, we'll, we'll keep going. We'll keep going. People want to, you know, when you've got your.
2: I mean, I've I've been blessed for a very long time to have you know, fans that I think, because I started so young, they always knew they were going to watch me grow. Mm. <laughs> like there was no, there was like, if I was still the 18 year old comedian, they would have all left by now and rightfully so. Um, I like the 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 patience and understanding. But, but, but man, that comes from what I was saying, that shedding the weak audience members, you know, do not be afraid to do jokes that people don't like, because if they don't like it, that's good. It's one thing that's always done in my head and about these f- comedians like, oh, you're so offended, you're so offended. I'm like, you, are, you nothing is better for you than offending audience members. It's the perfect thing for you. Because what happens is you go on stage in front of a thousand people, you offend 300 people, right? by your argument you don't want those 300 people at your next show because they're ruining it because they're fucking triggered so the fact that they're triggered is an excellent thing because they're fucking off and they're not there anymore but the reason you're sad that they're triggered and this is my theory and it's a conspiracy theory about fucking right-wing comics and that are not slightly right the far fucking right comics they're so fucking desperate for that centre and that centre-left audience, which is what most comedy fans are. They're so desperate to it but they do not have the skill, the nuance, nor the empathy to do any jokes that get them. So that's why they'll complain. Oh yeah, they're so easily offended. And then they go and they get to their right wing audiences and they're angrier because they're like, these people don't laugh at the irony in my racism. <laughs> you're like, you're goddamn right. They don't motherfucker. Cause you shed the good ones. Like when you trigger people, they're not going to come to your next show. And the publicity that you get from being a, an offensive comedian is a Trumpet call to those people that think you can't say anything anymore. And then all those people come to your show and you're miserable because that's not the audience you want because it's an audience full of angry, stupid people just like you.
0: But the good thing is, then you can always go. And then I looked on Twitter. Yes. and you count Twitter as actually being the power structure as opposed to the church and state and you pretend yes. that you're... I wanted to ask a little bit about books, just briefly as well, which is, uh, did you read or have you ever... I mean, a comedy biographies ever part of your life as someone who's always been to comedy? Have you ever... I mean, there, there are certain books that I... Steve Martin's Born Standing Up.
2: For yes, instance, so that, that is... was going to be the one I was just about to say. I loved that one. And uh, the, my only and my only problem with that book, it's not a problem, but it's one of the bits that stands out to me because it's... So a comedian thing he does, which is his career's going up and up and up and up and up, it's getting bigger. And he goes, the, He says that the day he realized his career was becoming over was he looked out into 5,000 people and there were two empty seats. And he was like, Well, that's that's the popularity gone, yeah. And that's, where, and that's what he decided. <laughs> and I'm like, Steve, they probably missed a bus, like, like they, they're probably at the bar. Like it seems like a really that's such a comedian thing to be like, Well, it's sold out, but two people didn't turn up, so I guess they didn't want to come i'm i'm over i'm done i'm finished
0: but that's that bit where you were talking about the, the, the battle with the audience, that's an interesting thing as well, isn't it? Which is so much of his struggle in the early days. And I do think he's one of the few comedian stand-ups that you can really say rewrote the language of stand-up. What 100%. he was doing, there were not... And and that bit is he battles, he battles, he battles and then he gets to Hollywood Bowl and everyone just cheers everything, which previously when he'd been, you know, in, in, in some little club in Sacramento with an arrow through his head or, you know, singing, you know, the, the I forget now. name, the the shark song thing. You know, people have been booing. And now people cheered before he'd done anything. And he was like, and that finding that intermediate stage where you go, I've made them laugh, not just them going, he's going to do the bit. But that's the bit you used to boo when you didn't know I was, before I was famous. Man,
2: that's that's why I think, and without naming names, uh, that's why I think comedians, so many comedians plateau at a certain level of fame because they lose the ability to gig to a neutral audience. And the neutral audience is the most important audience in the world. You can make your own fans laugh with anything. You know, if you walk out on stage to just your people, they're there, they're, they're on board. They've, they've drank the Kool-Aid. They know their language, they know the nuance, they'll laugh at everything. The important thing is to go to people that don't know you and win them over to get them on site, because that was the skill that we all started with when we were all nobody. And I think you get to a certain level of fame where that stops existing. And that's why so many comedians, again, without mentioning a name, when you watch their specials now, you go, oh, oh, I mean, it was fine, I guess. It's not what he or she used to do. um, And it's not not necessarily their fault. It's because they went on stage, they tried to find a neutral audience and they can't find one. They go on, woo, and everything. And then everything, there's no editing process. There's no bombing. There's no feedback or pushback even um another guy mean comedians autobiographies I always I liked uh, I love I love Kevin Bridges one um uh, and Frankie Boyle's uh one I did love uh Catherine Ryan's autobiography I'm reading just for parenting advice uh because she, she apparently somehow she can teach her like six month old son not to shit in his nappy and I'm like that sounds like a life hack I absolutely
0: need in my life um Thanks for it. sorry we didn't talk very well. I mean we didn't. Well, your book is basically because it starts of the. I mean, was it, I presume it was after dark that that was when you got but, approached saying that yeah it was after issues. dark
2: and Jigsaw came out. They got approached and and they just said you've clearly got a lot of opinions on relationships and you have a lot of interesting relationships. Can you can you go into those and then uh, and then they didn't edit as much as I wanted them to and now I have a book. <laughs>
0: So, so uh, I highly recommend uh, everyone listen to this to uh, to read that book. And also, I always mention this at any point that there is a captive audience. Watch Barry Crimmins, "Call Me Lucky." Watch Bobcat Goldthwait's film about because I think some of the things that we're talking about are very much covered in in that film as well. And Barry unfortunately died a few years ago, uh, quite suddenly, and is a you know when you have do you have certain uh, your ch- people that you feel not enough people know who they are? Oh, 100%. you who, who 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 are the ones that let let me give you a chance to recommend someone give me uh, Mark, anything.
2: Uh, Mark Nelson uh, when I started doing comedy in Scotland when I was about seventeen years old, Mark Nelson was always the headliner and just his joke writing and delivery was and still is you know second to to very few uh, and for whatever reason he just doesn't have the success that he deserves. Um, I think from for British people who, who are getting into comedy, who might not know a lot of American comedy, um, Bo Burnham is unbelievable. Um, I think his, I watch his show, What, at minimum three times a year, just because I think it's so so very, very good. It's one of those comedy shows where, as a comedian, I sat in the audience and I listened to some of his songs, and I was like, I can't believe he wrote that song just for me. What a weird thing. He's playing to a thousand people. Yeah, he wrote a joke just for me specifically. What a nice thing for him to do. Oh, God, who else? Michelle Wolfe. Michelle Wolfe's special on Netflix. Um, I know so many people will say that they don't like uh, watching her because she has quite a shrill voice. If you can get past that, which you should, it's some of the best jokes I've ever, ever heard about uh, uh, women's reproductive rights. Um, and it's phenomenal. It's so good. It's so good.
0: Well, that's interesting you mention that again because that's where, I know we keep coming back to that, but it's because of the week that we're recording this, but that's one of the things that frustrates me most about the people that the, the those who are supposed edgy comics are railing against is when we see what's going on in uh, the US, when we see what's going on in the UK, yeah. when we see the control, the actual power that the right have, and over the media as well, to be railing against the people who are questioning that. Seems yeah. to be the wrong target. Yeah, it's,
2: it's it's the problem we have in the UK right now with all these, you know, right wing comedians being like, "We're well, sticking to the man." You're like, "Motherfucker, you're the man. Yeah. You've been the man <laughs> for ten fucking years." What are you talking? And I'm Scottish. You've been the man for my entire life. What are you talking
0: about? Daniel thank you so much Uh, thank you very much everyone who supports us as well by uh, Patreon and all that stuff and uh, thank you very much to our producer uh, Trent Burton is it out right now the book or is it on its cusp I'm not sure no
2: yes it's been out this is it's been out for a year this is the paperback copies it was meant to come out and then the pandemic happened and then it was meant to be released but because I fundamentally changed during the pandemic as we all did I was like I'm going to have to rewrite some of these chapters because I certainly don't believe that way anymore I Also, I want to write a a more honest chapter about uh, mental health because mine's deteriorated to shit during that lockdown. So I added that in.
0: We'll we'll have that conversation another time. Ah. Anyway, I highly (laughs) recommend this. It turns out very, very old book. It's been out for years and years (laughs) and years. You've all read it. Um, And uh, yeah, everyone you hate is going to die. Uh, Daniel, thanks very much. Lovely speaking to you,
1: buddy. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Patreon.com slash bookshambles to support and get an extended edition of the episode and all the other goodies I mentioned at the top. Like, rate, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'll be back next week with another episode of Book Shambles when I'm not sure who our guest will be next week, but it could be Professor Jim Al-Khalili. Take care, have a great week, and we'll see you soon.
0: This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.
1: Josie Robin's book Shambles
0: was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.